thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is always an honor and privilege to speak to this congregation, and this week I and a group of men, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, had an opportunity to take part in a uh, discipleship summit being put on by the Central Kentucky Network of Baptists, and it was all about strategizing on how to make disciples in the church, and there was a lot of exciting ideas that were being discussed. Some we may introduce, others we may not, but the overall message of the group uh, when we were talking there is that if we have been saved by Jesus Christ, we must be disciple makers. On Sunday nights, I walked through the uh, Great Commission for about four weeks or so, the various Great Commission passages, and it is clear from the Great Commission, we are called to be disciple makers. This is going to lead into where we pick up in Hebrews chapter 3 in a few moments, but first, allow me to read to you 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a verse some of you may be familiar with. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Last week, we spent the basic entirety of the sermon talking about how Jesus is too great of a savior. His message is too great of a message to be taken for granted. We talked about the incarnation, how God the Son became flesh and blood to save a people of flesh and blood. We talked about how he died a real death to pay the price of sin for all those whosoever believe in him. We saw that he was tempted in ways we can't even fathom, and yet he never even for a second gave in to temptation. Christ is a great redeemer who saves people from their sins through what he did on the cross. When we repent from our sins and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus you are forever assured of your salvation. At the moment of your faith, you are positionally sanctified. That is, and we talked about this a little bit last week. I'm kind of giving a recap here. Positionally sanctified, you are seen as righteous before God. It is not even your righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness that has been given to you. You are uh, positionally sanctified before God right at the moment of salvation. And now in our lives, we are practically sanctified. That is, we are going through the process of becoming more and more like Jesus as we continue on in this world before he calls us home. You've been born again. In 2 Corinthians here, it it shows that through faith in Christ, you are a new creation. Uh, The old has passed away. The new has come. And what a glorious transformation this is. In nature, we see an illustration of this that I want to elaborate on. It's an imperfect illustration, but bear with me here. It's starting to warm up and things are starting to bloom. I I know this is the case because as you can hear, my allergies are off the charts right now. Well, according to the University of Kentucky Entomology Department, this is also about the time of year when the eastern tent caterpillar caterpillar starts to uh, doing its thing. 
They hatch and they start amassing uh, those large webby nets you'll see in the, in the crevices of the trees there. They're those pretty little blue caterpillars. They're real tiny like that. Uh, and they got the blue stripes down and with the black and the white dots, all that good stuff. And uh, I haven't seen them this year yet, me personally, but I can tell you when I was a kid, they were my favorite little bugs to play with. I would love those things. They were, they were gentle. They weren't going to prick you. There were other caterpillars that would prick you. These were the good ones, right? They were nice. So I, I, would, I would try to be careful with it, but I couldn't help but playing with those little caterpillars. Well, did you know that in just four weeks from being a little caterpillar, in four to six weeks, those little guys are full grown. They get to about one and a half, I think, maybe two inches on the big side. They're full grown, and they wander off somewhere, and they go, and they form a cocoon. And they're in that cocoon and they're in there for about three weeks. And after three weeks, they emerge and no longer are they a soft little uh, caterpillar that I like to play with. But now they're fully formed into the eastern tent moth. Now, I don't think many of us would want to be considered a moth. But bear with me here for a second. That's not the point I want to make. I want you to think real quickly how silly it would be. How ridiculous it would be if after that eastern tent moth emerged from its cocoon, it went right back to slinking across the ground. It went right back to climbing up the stem of the plant, getting on the leaf and taking a bite that way. If we could communicate to that moth, we would say to it, hey, buddy, you got wings now. What are you doing? Why are you slinking around when you got wings? It would be utterly ridiculous to see a new creature acting in the same manner as prior to its transformation. We think that creature is either utterly confused on what it is supposed to be doing about its nature or maybe even think that it's been injured to a degree that prevents it from behaving how it should. I bring this up to say, Christian, Redeemed by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been made a new creature and it would be utterly ridiculous to act the same way you did before you were saved. If you haven't already, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. What we're talking about directly coincides with verse 1 here. Remember that Jesus died on the cross to bring many sons to glory as we looked at. If you repent and believe, you have been saved. You have been, uh, you, you have been and are being sanctified. You are a new creature, now identifying as a child of God, a joint heir with Jesus, all these things we've been talking about. You have a new and a better calling on your life given to you by the better and best Savior that there is. So with that understanding, look at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, Let's pause right there. I know that's only a few words in. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. I want to pause right here and focus on the first half of the verse because it is drastically important to every single thing that we do right here at Durban Memorial Baptist Church. This text says, therefore, Remember, that's a conjunction. It is tying things together. It is connecting what is about to be said with what had just been previously stated. So because Jesus is the high uh, faithful priest to make propitiation for the sins and never fell to temptation, we are told to act upon that knowledge in the second half of verse 1. 
But before we get to that, the writer says, it reminds us who he is talking to. The Spirit says, therefore, holy brothers. Look at that. Holy brothers. We've talked about holiness quite a bit, but that's because the text demands it. Something is only considered holy when it is set apart. Think about the Holy Bible. It's a book that's been set apart from all other texts. It is the only text that is the word of God. Holiness denotes something that is sacred. There are a lot of things that may be considered holy from a cultural level here. So stay with me. I'm talking from a level of our common culture. Uh, Sometimes even days are considered holy. That's where the word holiday comes from. Holy days. Days that have been set apart for a particular purpose. Objects can be considered holy on a cultural level. Do y'all know that the football that Tom Brady threw his final touchdown pass with just sold recently for $500,000? That's wild. The buyer wanted to enshrine the ball in some sort of museum or something like that. And then mere hours, we're talking hours after this guy said, I, it was at an auction, he said, $500,000, I'll take it. Hours after that, Tom Brady says, y'all, I'm coming back. He said, I'm not going to retire anymore. He's coming back. And in all likelihood, this ball that was just bought for $500,000 would no longer be the last touchdown pass that Tom Brady would throw. The guy would be left with a half a million dollar paperweight. Uh, I thought that was the end of the story. But as I was looking that up this week, it turns out, uh, much to that guy's uh, glee, uh, that uh, the auction house, the buyer and the seller agreed to cancel the sell. The object was no longer considered to be holy or set apart. They canceled the uh, sale there. But true holiness, real biblical holiness that we're talking about, is not derived from fun activities or human achievements. R.C. Sproul describes the source of holiness as this. He says, what makes something sacred, what makes something holy is the touch of God upon it. When the, when the one who is himself other and different touches something that which is ordinary, it becomes extraordinary. When he touches you, you become uncommon. The difference between the profane and the holy is the difference between the common and the uncommon, between the earthly and the heavenly. God is true holiness, and thus true holiness imbued upon something comes only from the Holy One. What I'm saying is it takes God to make something holy. With an understanding of true holiness, my question this morning is twofold. Number one, have you been touched by God to see his saving grace? And number two, if you have been touched by God to see his saving grace, do you realize that makes you holy? Set apart. Do you understand the implications of your salvation? The writer calls the recipients here holy brothers. When you join the family of God through repentant faith in Jesus Christ, you become holy. So then, if you've been given a new and a holy nature, don't go back to the profane. The Christian life is a life set apart 
from the sinful world. We exist in the world. We do not exist of the world. Church, we are called to pursue righteousness and to live holy lives, set apart lives, not to earn our salvation on the merit of our works, but rather because we have received salvation. We've been transformed into new creatures, as we looked at a moment ago, with the ability to go forward in life, not on our own, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. We live holy, set-apart lives. And those lives are on mission. We see in the next clause of the verse 1 here, uh, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, This is talking to the the recipients of that day, but it's talking to us here today as well. Holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling. Where does the calling in a Christian's life come from? Heaven. That is saying that in our new lives as new creatures, we're given a new calling. Well, what is our calling? What do we do? What is our calling? I believe that's best described with the two great C's. The great command and the great commission. You may be familiar with these verses. We're going to throw them up. Matthew 22, uh, 37 through 38. Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. There's our great commandment. And then we see in 28 of Matthew, the great commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The heavenly calling that the holy brethren have been given is to love the Lord with everything they got. And that love is made manifest, it is made known through obedience to go out and to make disciples. All Christians are set apart, called and sent to serve God in everything that they do. The particulars are going to look different in your life and my life. and all of our lives, they might be uh, a little bit different. Not all of us are called to international missions. Not all of us are called to be pastors. But every single one of us are called to be disciples who make disciples. So begin, go back to the beginning of verse 1 and let's read the whole thing together. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The Spirit is teaching all the holy ones called by God how to press on in their calling. He says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. That has been the point of the whole series that we've been going through since we started the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Consider Jesus. You can't take the gospel for granted when you consider Jesus. You're reminded that you're a part of a holy people when you consider Jesus. You see the model for obedience coming from the provider of justification when you consider Jesus. Church, may we be a people that considers Jesus. You say, say, okay, Brad, I'll consider Jesus. I'll think about him. But what should I be thinking about him? Well, everything we've looked at thus far in the book of Hebrews would be good. 
It is all beneficial, all profitable for us. It would be fitting. But right here, the, uh, the, the Spirit draws our attention to two particular positions of Jesus. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. We looked at high priest a bit last week. That position signifies that Jesus made sacrifice for our sins. But what does it mean to consider Jesus an apostle, the high apostle? Uh, or I'm sorry, the apostle there. In that uh, the apostle means that Jesus was the commissioned messenger. He is the ultimate apostle in that he preached the message of salvation as commissioned by God the Father. Jesus is the perfect model of obedience and faithfulness while simultaneously being the provider of salvation. Consider these things. That's a whole lot to think about. He is the perfect model of obedience and faithfulness and proclamation while simultaneously being the provider of salvation. Consider Jesus. And this flows right into verse two. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Jesus was faithful and obedient in, the, in fulfilling the purposes for which he was sent. He preached the good news. He fulfilled the scripture. He died on the cross. Every T was crossed. Every I was dotted in the life of Jesus for Jesus to be the Messiah. That's not to say that there was ever a doubt that Jesus was going to be the one. Uh, he was going to be faithful. At least God the Father never doubted that Jesus would do what he was supposed to do. It's the sin in man that looks at Jesus and doubts if he's the true Savior he's cracked up to be. Consider Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who was the gospel forerunner. He seemed to doubt if Jesus was the one they were waiting for. In Matthew 11, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just paraphrase the, uh, the, the text there. John the Baptist is in prison. He's about to be executed. He sends a messenger to Jesus, and the messenger asks Jesus, he says, are you the one who is to come, or should we be waiting for another? The question from John the Baptist was showing that he was a fallen creature marred by sin, not seeing Jesus for who he really is. That is the faithful one, the Messiah. Christ was always going to be faithful to God the Father. He was always going to be obedient. There was never an eternal doubt in this case. In our verse here in Hebrews, the Spirit says that Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was faithful to God as Moses was faithful. We see there in the second half of the verse there. Now, at this point, as readers of the word, we should begin asking ourselves, why bring up Moses here? We haven't been talking about Moses. We've been talking about angels, and now we're seeing Moses here. Why are we bringing up Moses? We're talking about Jesus. If you only look at verse 2 here as well, you might even think that the writer is saying Jesus and Moses are equivalent. So let's briefly talk about why Moses would be included here. Remember that the original recipients of this letter were Hebrews. They would be familiar with what we call the Old Testament. And to them, Moses was a superstar. I mean, he, he was used by God 
He got the people out of Egypt. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. He received the commandments at Mount Sinai. He was with his people through their wandering in the wilderness. And he died at the ripe old age of 120 at the top of Mount Nebo, looking over the promised land that would soon be given to his people. Moses was considered a hero by the Hebrews. So when the writer compares Jesus and Moses and says that they were faithful, he is saying, hey, people, I know you know about this Moses guy. I know you hold him in a high esteem. He was a really faithful guy, but just wait till you understand this other guy, Jesus. It's a bit hard for us to understand in modern terms because I don't think that there is a current equivalent for Moses in the same way that the Hebrews would have looked at Moses. But it, it may be in some ways similar to how we think about Charles Spurgeon. Uh, now, uh, obviously, God didn't use Charles Spurgeon to part the Red Sea uh, and deliver a people out of slavery. But God did use uh, Charles Spurgeon to share the good news. He shared the gospel and he contended for the faith. Just about every week as I'm preparing our message for Sunday morning, I, I try to uh, reference a Spurgeon commentary if I have one that is available when my wife and I were in England for a month, we would go around and visit the different churches. And I, I won't go into it, but I just loved English church. Uh, it, it was a wonderful experience for us. But when we were there, we went to uh, the city of Bath and we were at a church called Whitcomb Baptist Church. And we had a very pleasant service. It was a very uh, a good time. And I, I, um, after the service was over, though, we were talking to some of the members of that church and uh, they were telling us some of the history, some of the things that had gone on. And they let us know Charles Spurgeon had come through that very building uh, many years ago and had preached at that very pulpit that was still at the center of the, uh, the, the, the podium up front, the, the area in the front. And uh, as I, they were talking about it, I just thought it was the coolest thing. I think they visibly saw how excited I was as they were uh, describing it to me. And so the guy that I was talking to says, do you want to go up there? He's like, you want to take a picture? I was like, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> so I did. And my, my wife and I did a lot of cool things in England. But honestly, one of my coolest moments in England was being able to stand at the pulpit that Charles Spurgeon was able to uh, preach a revival at some years before. But what we'll see for the rest of our time together this morning is that Moses and Charles Spurgeon, for that matter, were faithful people. And that is well and good. That can even be celebrated. But don't mistake the good for the great. Look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. We can say that Jesus and Moses were both faithful. But the Spirit in writing this verse wants the Hebrews of that day and us here today understand Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. We mustn't mistake the heroes of the faith for the object of our faith. Let me say that again. We mustn't mistake the heroes of the faith, for the object of our faith. Faithful men and women 
used by God are an encouragement to us. They can be models. They can be our teachers. But they are never worthy of the glory that Christ receives. In fact, as we study and learn from the heroes of the faith, they ought to be pointing us back to God and giving him all the more glory. I love the analogy used on the back half here. Verse three says as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. What does this mean? It means the house is cool. The house is good, but the house wouldn't exist without the builder. The nails and the screws don't place themselves into the studs in the proper manner without the builder. The cement doesn't pour itself into the foundation without the builder. The builder is worthy of more honor because the house owes its existence to the builder. And in this analogy, Christ is the builder and Moses is simply a stone in the house. Spurgeon notes in his commentary, he says, Moses was only a stone in the house with the Lord uh, Jesus Christ had built. Let us think of our Lord as the architect and builder of his own church and let our hearts count him worthy of more glory than Moses. Let us give him glory in the highest. The point here is not to say that we should not think highly of Moses or other heroes of the faith, but rather we should think more highly even of Jesus because he is who they're all pointing us towards. Why should we think high of Jesus? Because he is the builder of his church and he is God, the son. Look at verse four. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. This verse subtly and quickly infuses some rich Trinitarian theology into the midst of our teaching. You want a great reason to give more glory to Jesus than any of the heroes of the faith? Well, it's because Jesus is the only one that is the son of God. Christ is the builder of all things. In chapter one, we're shown he's the hand of creation. John 1, 3, which we don't have it, but I'll just read it. It says, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is to be understood, praised, and honored as the great master builder. Christ said in Matthew, upon this rock, I will build my church. Did you catch that? Upon this rock, who? I, Christ said, I will build my church. We can think of the house Being built in verse 3 and expanded upon in verse 4 as the community of all believers and every single one of them included in the house because of what Christ has done. As I shared in a sermon on my first Sunday here with this congregation, the person of Christ working in perfect harmony with the God, the Father and God, the Holy Spirit. God is the source of initiator, implementer, and guarantor of all salvation. God builds the church, collects his people, and we best all praise the Lord for the grace he has given to include us in his glorious purpose. The writer of our section of Hebrews is continuing to exalt the glory of Christ. Then in verse five, our attention is drawn back to Moses once more. It says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify the things that were to be spoken later. We're reminded here Moses was good. Moses was faithful in tending to God's people, but his ultimate purpose was to point them to what would be spoken later. 
Christ would come in and declare even more clearly the truth that had been revealed through Moses. In fact, everything Moses did is pointing to Christ. That's why we must look for Christ as we study the Old Testament. All of it is pointing to him. But some Hebrew people of the day thought Jesus was basically a second Moses. The next verse shows us once more that Jesus was greater than just some second iteration of Moses. We're going to read verses five and six again. It says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses was a servant. Christ is a son. Moses served the house. Christ inherits the house. It belongs to him. Do not pass the last sentence in verse 6. The house belongs to Christ. And we are his house. Spurgeon notes, do we realize that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in the midst of us? How clean we ought to be, how holy, how heavenly, how we should seek to rise above the earth and keep ourselves reserved for the crucified. In this house, no rival should be permitted ever to dwell, but the great Lord should have every chamber of it entirely to himself. Oh, that he may take his rest within our hearts as his holy habitation. And and may there be nothing in our church life that shall grieve the Son of God and cause him even for a moment to be withdrawn from us. It's a glorious truth that Christ is in the hearts of the believer. Such a fact should have us motivate us to serve the master of the house. We know we are a part of this house by how we hold fast in confidence of the Lord and boasting only in the hope of Jesus. We see there at the end. And we are of his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. But notice the word if. This is a tricky word. We are of his house If we hold fast. What does this mean? This is pointing us to the doctrine of preservation. This is not saying that we will never have doubts or fall into sin as we are being sanctified in this life. This is talking about real lasting faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope for salvation. Spurgeon once again noted, he whom God has chosen holds on and holds out even to the end. While temporary professors make only a fair show in the flesh, but by and by their faith vanishes away. It is my great fear that many self-identified Christians in America are just that, self-identified. They made some profession of faith at some time, but never had real conviction of the Holy Spirit, never truly understood the weight of their sin, they were emotionally drawn by the right chords being played under the invitation. But as they press on in life, they have no real confidence or hope in Jesus. Church, we're not capable of being the Holy Spirit nor judging the position of one's soul before God. 
But we are called in Scripture to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus told us not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So I ask you, do you really believe in the name of the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord? That's all it takes to be made right with God. It is simple, but it is not easy. Understanding Jesus in his proper place is understanding that his commands and his desires for your life are more important and more beneficial than your own desires and your own wants in your life. I can tell you this, through our scripture, we have seen the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. There really is no one better. I'm resolved to worship him and to honor him in everything I do. I don't get it right all the time, but my resolve is to do, try to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's why I believe our calling is that it's professed in the word of God. And so I ask, will you join me in this? Are you willing to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and submit to him as the Lord he is? If so, and you've done so for a long time, press on, brother. And remember, you are a new creature. But if you're coming to that understanding for the first time, would you respond during this hymn of response? Come forward as this house of the Lord supports you in exalting the name of Jesus in all that you do. Join me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I thank you for the great salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. Lord, I pray that if the Holy Spirit is convicting anyone here with us or watching to this message anywhere, that they would reach out, that we would be there to support as you are doing the work that only you can do. We don't save anyone. We are just called to be ambassadors of Christ, preaching the message of reconciliation. So Lord, I pray that we would do so, be pointing people back to you because you are the only way. How great the chasm that laid between us. But Christ on the cross bridged that gap. Lord, I pray that all of us would repent and believe in the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.